Good evening. Uh, this reading tonight comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 to 22, and can be found on pages on page 1197 of your church Bible. Uh, that's page 1197 of your church Bible. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, had deserted me and, and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychius to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defence, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. <coughs> Eubulus greets you and so do Pudens, Linus, and Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. These are the words of the Lord. Good evening, everybody. Thank you, Tim. And here we are at the end of the book of 2 Timothy. And when we get to a portion of New Testament scripture like this, and to the closing remarks, especially when they appear so practical, like these ones, like bring my cloak or greet Priscilla, there's instructions that we clearly can't do. We might be tempted at some point to skim over the whole section. It's tempting to do, isn't it? But we read a few weeks ago in chapter 3 that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So as tempting as it is sometimes to skim through these names and these instructions, it would be really helpful for us to stop and pause and reflect on these verses tonight because we find in them some really useful applications for us and some brilliant truths about Christ and what is true for all Christians. So let's pray as we begin. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for all of scripture that you've blessed us with. We thank you that it's helpful, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training us so that we'll be thoroughly equipped for all God's work. So we pray that as we look at this passage tonight, um, 
that you'd speak to us through it, that we may grow in fellowship with you and love of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Now, you might have been here back in December when David preached on the first section of uh, 2 Timothy. And David explained to us that Timothy is Paul's protege, his ministry apprentice, and he had a choice in front of him. Does he follow the model of ministry that Paul lays down for him, preaching the true gospel? Or does he move away from that model, do it slightly different, maybe water it down a little bit, make it a bit more comfortable? Does he associate himself with Paul, the imprisoned apostle? Or does he disassociate himself with him and choose perhaps a more popular way? And so we read in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says to Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of of God. Throughout the rest of the book, Paul gives Timothy a frank view about the likely things he will face if he does follow his model of ministry. Suffering, disloyalty, opposition, challenges, distractions from teachers claiming to be followers of Christ but who are really just pseudo-Christians. And Paul tells Timothy that to stay the course he must face all these things with, with godliness. He must have nothing to do with false teachers or godless chatter. Rather, he should hold tight to what he's already learned, to to continue in the study and the proclamation of God's word with faithfulness so that he's able to correct, rebuke, and encourage those under his care. And then Paul writes these personal remarks, these final greetings to Timothy. And in them we find a final word on what it's like to follow Paul's model of ministry. What is it? Well, it is that those you partner with in preaching and teaching the gospel, well, they might let you down. They might turn away from Jesus and desert you. They might even oppose you because gospel partnerships are relationally hard. We'll be thinking about that in a bit more detail in a moment, but it's not all that Paul is saying in these verses. He says quite a lot. He moves around a little bit, he gives instruction for ministry, he warns, he encourages, and he gives practical instructions. So tonight we've got three headings which I've drawn out from these verses. Um, The first of these is up on there already, gospel partnerships, we've touched on that. We'll also be thinking about gospel priorities and gospel hope. So do stay with me as we move around these verses a little bit and draw out some of these applications for us. So firstly, gospel partnerships. And we start at verse 9. Paul says to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. Paul is longing to see his friend and apprentice. Now Paul's focus before this verse has been on the glory that is to come because, of he, because he is in Christ. He talks in verse 8 about how there's a, a crown of righteousness for him that will be awarded to him on the day when when Christ returns. And it will be true for everyone who longs for that day as well. And what we get in verse 9 is a reminder that Paul has present needs and predicaments. He is human. He's just like us. At this point, Paul believes his death is imminent. In verse 6, he said, the time for my departure is near. And right then, at that point, he so badly wants to see his friend Timothy. 
In fact, in our verses, he says it another couple of times. Verse 11, get Mark and bring him with you. And verse 21, do your best to get here before winter. Why is Paul desperate to see Timothy? No doubt, no, well, no doubt it was to see how Timothy is doing. How, hear how the church that Paul has started in Ephesus is going to encourage Timothy to keep continuing again. But also, probably, just because Paul is lonely. Look at verse 10. Demas has deserted him. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Verse 12, he sent Titus to Ephesus. And verse 20, both Erastus and Trophimus aren't there with him either. Some are for good reasons. Perhaps there's a gospel opportunity there or a church to encourage over there. These are people we can all safely presume that Paul has seen come to faith, who have grown in maturity in Christ and who Paul has taught to minister to God's people. You see, Paul was an expert in investing and developing church leaders. Now, it might be easy for us to imagine Paul as some kind of super apostle charging around the Mediterranean on his boat like some hyped-up Lone Ranger evangelist Superman. But that wasn't the case. We can see here and in other places in the New Testament that he had people round him. One scholar went through the New Testament counting up all those people that are mentioned like this in, in the New Testament in Paul's writing. So we're going to do a little exercise just for fun. How many do you think this scholar counted? If you thought it was, uh, say, up to 25 different names, put your hand up. No? Oh, yeah, a couple. 25 to 50? Yeah, a few. That's what I, you're all really good at this because that's what I would have gone for. Anyone above 50? Well done. You are correct. Believe it or not, 100 people, just under 100 people are mentioned in Scripture in a similar way, having similar connect, some kind of connection with Paul. You see, he did not do this on his own. He was all about developing ministers and sending them out and building gospel partnerships. That's something that we here too have a rich history of at our church. I think we've understood what Paul is about in doing that and we've, we've emulated it as we can. We've built up, we've trained, we've developed ministry leaders and, and sent them out. These are people that we count as friends and partners. We regularly pray for them and support them in in different ways. And it's really important that we as a church keep, keep doing that, to keep following Paul's example and to pray that God uses them to grow his church in those places we've sent them. But the overall point here is that Paul is almost on his own, almost. Only Luke is with me, he says in verse 11. And so he wants to see Timothy and he wants Timothy to bring Mark along Two. Now, I love that Luke is there with him. Presumably, he's supporting him physically and spiritually whilst he's in prison. And it makes me think, I'd like to be a Luke. You know, I'd like to stand alongside a minister and encourage them, be like Luke. You know, it's not an easy job ministering to people. It never will be. And whilst our ministry team, our children's group leaders, or our small or local group leaders, or anyone else that is involved in any kind of ministry here. Well, they're obviously very unlikely, thankfully, to be imprisoned like Paul, but still ministry can and is very isolating and lonely. 
So how can we support them? How do we support them? Obviously through prayer, perhaps through examples of love too, providing hospitality, just standing alongside them as they, as they do their ministry, perhaps just doing something fun with them for once in a while. And of course, if you were here on Thursday night at our prayer meeting, you'd have heard about pastors in, in other countries who've been locked up for preaching this gospel or even martyred. Perhaps we can be a loop to those ministers or their families too, those that are persecuted in other countries. But as good as it is that Luke is there now, even he, Paul's dear, trusted friend, has let him down in the past. Just look at verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to me for support, but everyone deserted me. Everyone, even Luke. Now we presume that Paul is talking here about his, his first trial. Now Roman law would have allowed him uh, a defendant to take an advocate along with them and also to call witnesses. And just imagine then that all the Christians that would have been in Rome, all, all the Christians that would have been able to travel to Rome at that point, not one of them was there to stand by Paul in court to speak on his behalf or to advise him what he should do or even to demonstrate any kind of sympathy with him. If he ever needed somebody, surely it was then. He must have felt just totally let down. You might be able to sympathise with Paul on this. Perhaps you've been let down by those you count as, as gospel partners. Perhaps even people sitting in this church tonight. If that's the reality, it's, it's, sorry, it is the reality, that if you are involved in a church long enough, your brothers and sisters will at some point let you down. Perhaps they won't be there for you, even those that you've got a deep shared trust with what should our response be well Paul's response is at the end of that verse may it not be held against them isn't that just wonderful I think Paul is expressing in writing a prayer that he has already prayed to God Lord forgive them please don't let it count against them yeah I'm let down and I'm hurt but please don't hold this against them it's remarkable isn't it remarkable love that Paul has for his gospel partners. You see, Paul truly understood that in Christ he was forgiven and therefore he knew the appropriate response was to forgive too. And Paul is, is an example for us to follow. It's not the only example, of course. There is an even more powerful example and that's the example of Christ. As he, as he hung there on the cross, he prayed to his Father in heaven for those that had nailed him there. The difference is that these weren't people who were, were close to him, never were. They'd never unwittingly let him down at, at his time of need. Now these were, these were soldiers putting him to death, playing dice for his clothes. And, and what did he pray? Father, forgive them. What wonderful love for them. And perhaps tonight, if you feel let down or hurt by your brother or your sister here. Perhaps tonight is the night that you pray, pray a similar prayer and you reconcile yourself with them. What a, one, what a wonderful prayer it is when we can say, Father, forgive those within our church who've let us down. And it's a wonderful example 
to other Christians and also to the watching world. So that's gospel partners. We're going to move partnerships. We're going to move on to our next one, gospel priorities. Now it would be easy, I think, for Paul, chained up in prison in a foreign country without any obvious hope of release, just waiting for his death to start feeling sorry for himself, to start becoming inward looking, to focus on his circumstances or maybe reflect on his past or uh, reflect on you know, regret for missed opportunities that he didn't take in the, in the past. But there is no evidence of that at all. So he asked for his cloak so he didn't get cold in the winter. He asked for his scrolls and his parchments. And we don't know what those were, but it, it seems reasonable to presume they are scripture or commentaries or perhaps his, his own notes. But that's really his only practical request. There is no evidence here of self-pity. In fact, the whole book is evidence of the fact that Paul was primarily concerned with those he loved. Timothy, being the main man, of course, but through him, the rest of the church. And he remained focused on God's plan to spread the gospel. Paul's priority was the gospel. Just look at verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. Why does he want Mark? Is it because he's some kind of expert in Roman law and might be able to get him, get him out of prison? Is it because Mark is you know, the life and soul of the party? He's going to cheer him, pull right up. Well, no. It says, bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Paul's focused while he's chained up, waiting for death, is who can help me with my ministry right now? I'm guessing Mark had some kind of useful gifts that, that would just fit nicely into the context Paul finds himself in. So, Timothy, bring him. This isn't the only time Paul's priorities are if I'm really honest, different to what mine might be if I was in a similar situation. Take Alexander here, the metal worker. Here is someone who has done Paul great harm. There's no indication of what exactly Alexander did, but it's not the first time we meet Alexander. We meet Alexander in 1 Timothy, chapter 1, and verses 19 and 20, where Paul tells Timothy that Alexander is someone who has rejected the faith and good conscience and has suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Paul even says that he's handed him over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. These are hard words, aren't they? And so, no wonder, back in, in verse 15 in our passage, Paul is warning Timothy, be on your guard against him. Why? Because Alexander strongly opposed the gospel. Paul, who's been a victim of a great deal of harm, doesn't self-pity about this, but, but instead warns Timothy. Alexander is trouble, and he could cause trouble for the future spreading of the gospel. In verse 10, we come across Demas. Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas is probably, just for, for us, probably just one name in the hundred that Paul mentions throughout his writings, but I don't think for Paul that was the case. Demas pops up in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, where Paul says, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Demas was one of Paul's gospel partners. In fact, Paul wrote Colossians when he was in prison, and so Demas was right there alongside him as he suffered locked up. He probably would have travelled with Paul 
and Luke and taught the scriptures and saw people come to Christ. And now he's in love with this world. Paul has already warned Timothy about misdirected love. We came across that in chapter 3. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. That verse goes on until the end of verse 4 where it says lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And Demas, could it be that he's fallen into that category? What was in Thessalonica that made him love the world? Maybe it was his home and he just longed for security. Maybe there was a woman there. Maybe he found a way that he could make some good money there. We don't know. But we do know that his desertion is really painful for Paul. This is a warning for us. Demas' love for the world is in contrast with verse 8 that we thought about last week. In verse 8, in our version, it speaks of those like Paul who have longed for Christ appearing, literally loved his appearing. Those whose hearts are filled with longing for the the day of Jesus' return. But here is Demas. He's loving the world, not loving Christ and his return. And we see in such a stark contrast the warning, don't fall in love with this world and all that it offers. Instead, be like the one who loves the Lord's appearing. So, so far, Paul has warned Timothy against those who oppose the gospel Like Alexander, he gives an example of those who've fallen in love with the world and deserted him. The gospel must be Timothy's priority, as it was for Paul. But perhaps we most evidently see Paul's gospel priorities in verse 17. This again, remember, is at Paul's first defense. Everyone's deserted him. But verse 17, the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. Gave me strength. Strength for what? So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Now imagine the kind of strength I'd want if I was on trial for preaching the gospel would be different. I'd want strength just to get through it until I hear the the not guilty judgment. Or if I don't hear that judgment, I just want Christ's blessing so that I can have peace and, and comfort with this situation. But Paul experiences the Lord standing right by him at his trial so that he's strengthened to further share the gospel, the very thing that he's on trial for. Of course, we know that the Lord loved Paul. We see him deliver him from the lion's mouth. We don't know whether that's in reality in the Colosseum or, or metaphorical. It doesn't matter. But God has delivered him from grave danger. And we also, and Paul also knows that God will bring him safely to his heavenly kingdom. So it wasn't as though God was only standing next to Paul for the sake of the gospel. But Paul says here that the outcome of the Lord standing next to him at his trial was strength for more gospel sharing. So that more Gentiles hear it. If we were in any doubt about Paul's priorities, surely it's evident here. Throughout his sufferings, locked up, nearing the end of his time on earth, he asked for help. In his ministry from Mark, he warns Timothy about oppositions to the gospel and how love for the world will replace love for Christ in his gospel. And he experiences the Lord's strengthening of him and the reasoning to tell the gospel all the more. Now, for those of us who are in ministry in church, whatever forum that might be in, however that looks, do we teach the gospel? Now, I hope and I'm very confident that the answer to that is yes. But do we also show 
the gospel. What I mean by that is, is it evident to those we are ministering to that the gospel really is the priority for us? Does our life reflect our teaching that Christ really is central to us in the way we act, the way we speak, the way we show love and grace to others? Simply, do we practice what we preach? Timothy can read through this part of Paul's letter and be in no doubt whatsoever that Paul's priority, despite his suffering, is Christ and the furthering of his gospel. It's a question for all of us too, those both in ministry and those not in any type of ministry. Is, and, and, and the question is this, in the list of all our priorities, all those things that we can and do set our hearts upon, and there's a lot of them, isn't there, where does the gospel rank for us? Where are the affections of our hearts set? Surely we don't want to be like Demas, loving this world and so deserting our brothers and sisters in the faith. So it's a good question to ask ourselves. Could our love be misdirected? Or are we in Paul's camp, prioritising Christ and his good news? Finally, gospel hope. Hopefully it's been evident as we've been going through the 2 Timothy that Paul isn't a fool. He isn't a fool prioritizing the gospel above his own material circumstance. He isn't a fool loving Jesus and being thrilled by the prospect of his return um, you know, out of some kind of sense that everything will just magically work out in the end. He isn't a fool for imploring Timothy to follow his example just out of some kind of blind hope. Now, he does, of course, long for his companion's presence. But his hope wasn't in Timothy or in Mark or anyone else. No doubt they would bring him comfort, but they wouldn't be able to keep him safe forever. They wouldn't be able to satisfy his longing for joy and peace and hope. Now, for all these things, he needed to trust in a sovereign Lord, and he does. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew that the Lord was the one who could do what his friends couldn't. Paul knew that the Lord would never desert him like his friends did. Paul knew that he would n- the Lord would never oppose his gospel ministry, or do him great harm, like Alexander. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. Paul knew gospel hope. He knew that he was safe in the arms of God, and that God would bring him safely to his heavenly kingdom. That's gospel hope. His story actually reminds me of another story of a follower of Jesus. John was his name. He was a missionary uh, almost 200 years ago. He turned to Christ at quite a young age. And at 33, he set sail for the South Pacific. His mission was to share the gospel to people who'd never heard it before. He went to an island called Tanna. Now, ministries, uh, sorry, missionaries had been here before and had been killed and even eaten. Within a year, his wife died in childbirth. And his newborn child died of a fever. And for the next four years, he served all alone on the island. 
And he tells a story of a moment when he's been pursued by hostile natives. He says, I climbed into a tree and was left there alone in the bush. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone, if it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Saviour's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. And he finishes with a question for us. If thus thrown back upon your own soul alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? I'd love to hear Paul's answer to that question. Yes, I do. I've been deserted by my friends when I needed them most, but I have the best friend, the only friend I truly need. The same one as you, John. His name is Jesus Christ, the Lord who rescues us from every evil attack and who brings us safely to his heavenly kingdom. Is Jesus Christ our friend too? Because if he is, then what is true for Paul is true for us. Now all else may be lost. We may be totally deserted by all. It's perhaps unlikely that we're going to be stuck up a tree or on death row, chained up or fed to lions, but we may well face equivalence to these. Yet, if we know Christ, we have gospel hope because in him we have all that we need and riches forevermore when he brings us safely to his heavenly kingdom. So we join with Paul in saying, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We began this series reflecting on the fact that Timothy had a choice. Would he continue his ministry in the way of Paul, even though it could, would, result in opposition, persecution, suffering? Or would he throw in the towel when it got tough, not wanting to be associated with the gospel or Paul, a convict evangelist chained in prison in Rome on death row? We've seen that Paul's charge to Timothy throughout the letter is, Remain resolute in God's service. Continue in the gospel. Guard it, suffer for it, and proclaim it. The Lord will bring you safely to his heavenly kingdom. And so Paul finishes his letter to Timothy by saying, The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Paul's final words to Timothy. May the Lord be with you as he's been with me, so that you may stand firm in the gospel as you minister to others. May give grace to the whole church so that every member may be steadfast, resolute, confident in Christ's ability to bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom. Shall we pray?